Hey, good morning. I'm so happy to say that a very clever and good friend of mine who lives in Hong Kong has agreed to be a guest on the Milk Road podcast. He's the first published author of a commercially available book who's ever been a guest on the Milk Road podcast. So it's a milestone for us, a big one. And he's not just written one book, but several. The next will be published this August, and I can't wait to read it. So why do people like me spend money to read what James writes? Well, he knows more about the combined games of storytelling, money, and fintech than anyone I know personally. And it feels fair to say that I've met many people who use the skill of storytelling in pretty sophisticated places, like Boal Forum. Hopefully, you already know that Boal Forum is the Bob Hawke-inspired answer to the World Economic Forum held annually in Davos, Switzerland. So what inspired Bob Hawke to create Boal? Well, I heard him say that he felt Australians needed to have a big conversation about Asia with people who live in Asia without everyone needing to fly to Europe. Boal Forum for Asia is also how James and I know one another. Jame was moderating a conference panel at Boal while I was either listening closely or playing golf on the beautiful course in Hainan Island where they hold Boal with people like Tom Friedman of the New York Times, who happens to be a fantastic golfer. And why was I listening so intently on and off the golf course? Because I had too much to learn at that stage in my career journey. And career journey-wise, Jame and I both happened to originally be from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh in the USA. And our career paths feel like they still contain a lot of value that remains locked up, undiscovered. So today, we're going to invest about an hour or so of our most valuable limited resource called time to try to unlock some of that undiscovered value. And hopefully, some of this newly discovered value will be exponential for you, Jame, and me. Now, Jame and I are going to talk about two big ideas, food security and climate change. And we'll do so through Jame's lens, which is the impact of technology on finance. Why? Because when I was researching Jame to prepare for a conversation, I found a valuable little piece of content that Jame created about climate change. It's only about two and a half minutes long, and I suggest you should probably watch it. I'll put it in the show notes. And it reminded me about a theory. Correlation between climate change and food security may be negative or higher than most people speculate, think, or just care to believe. And people seem to trade stories like currencies about their beliefs. And this seems to change how people estimate this correlation too. And in the YouTube clip, James said, we are not going to get there using old school technology. And I say, I agree, James. And I think he'll also agree with this too. What won't get us there? Old school thinking. So on that note, James, welcome to the Milk Road podcast. Thanks for coming on as a guest. And how's it going today in Hong Kong? Oh, it's it's fine. I'm happy to be here on the big move. On the what? The big move. Oh, the big move. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Starting strong with a with a Milk Road uh, joke. I like that. 
Um, yeah, if we're not entertaining people in uh, finance in Hong Kong, who's going to pay attention? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hey, so the banking world's uh, moving around uh, and stories, uh, you know, about depositors are, are running kind of like the wind. Uh, I saw Fraser from Citibank uh, and made some comments about that. Uh, do you mind taking a quick 30 seconds or so to tell us, um, you know, what the feeling is in Hong Kong about Credit Suisse? Because I really liked your your post about how Credit Suisse was a big part of the sevens and and confidence in this and that. Uh, I mean, it's not a Hong Kong story, but obviously this is a major financial center. And so Credit Suisse had a big presence here, still has, I guess, and it's before it transitions to its new form. Uh, they uh, uh, they had the uh, the top floors of ICC. So if you're looking at the screen, the, my back screen, yeah. uh, that large square tower, very tall one in the in the back across the harbor is ICC, yeah. and um, it looks over um, uh, the the harbor. And UBS is in is across the harbor. Uh, yeah. And the people at Credit Suisse, if you visit them, they always like to point out that they're on a higher floor and they were looking down on the UBS offices. <laughs> uh, capital structure. Uh, capital structure. Yeah, so that's 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 not the case anymore. But um, uh, you know, uh, I think people are just kind of um, you know, depressed. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a major house that kind of evaporated very quickly. Um, but it's been but, it's know, been but it also while, you know right? the, well I mean they made a lot of mistakes along the way, which everybody knows about. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I feel sorry for my, some of my friends who who work over there, who are hardworking people who had nothing to do with uh, some of the crazy shenanigans that the bank got up to and yeah. put them in the situation. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. All right. So um, you, you have, uh, you're on the, are you still on the board of the Hong Kong uh, FinTech Association? Yes, I am. You are, right? So I think it's fair to say that you're an expert in the, the space. You're a journalist. You're on a company called uh, Digfin. Yeah. And you talk with, um, you know, the largest global bank people in the world about digital finance for quite a long time. You've got uh, a huge amount of um, expertise. And when I was researching uh, for this podcast, I found some really valuable information that you had um uh, put out in a two-minute um, YouTube clip uh, talking about how digital finance may be uh, required actually to work on a problem like climate change. Yeah. And um, and I'm wondering, have you seen, I don't think that's been happening as much. And I want to know, why do you think not? Like what, I mean, like what's Credit Suisse doing? <laughs> so, uh, right. Like yeah. what are people like, they're, they're wasting money on other things. And why are they not investing in that? So obviously when there's two transitions going on in the world, transitions are hard. Transitions are very large, but sometimes slow moving beasts. Um, and you've got to do the day-to-day -day businesses as well. Transformation is painful because it's not just adding a widget, it's creating a whole new mentality in how a, an institution uh, thinks about itself, how the people in that institution think about their roles and what they're trying to do. So digitization is, is one of these big trends. It is not just about the tech itself. Sure. It's there's about... gotta be the, like, there's gotta be the why. I mean, the reason you shut down Credit Suisse is because of an exponential event. 
Like people don't do big change because they like it. They do it because they're forced. Is that wrong? Um, well, if you look at some of the banks, I mean, DBS is the poster child for this, where they have a visionary CEO, but also who's understood that the 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 key to change is is a cultural shift within the entire bank, not just a few key people up top, uh, but the the way that everybody thinks about what is their goal, what is their role, and the use of technology to achieve that. It's very, very different. I mean, the reason it's different is because <clears throat> banks have been set up as silos of products, credit product, a wealth product, insurance product, a lending product, whatever. All right. Those products are essentially like legal contracts. And all the information about that product is contained in the product silo or the product box. Right. But if I'm a customer of that bank and I am both, uh, I'm a depositor, I use you for payments, I use you for lending, I maybe I also use you for business loans, maybe I use you for investments. So from my point of view as the customer, I want to be able to know all about myself in one holistic view. But the banks, because of the way they've been set up, because of the the legal structures that they follow can't do it. And also their mainframe servers are also attached to those boxes. So transforming that in a way so that everybody can start to, uh, to cross share that data so that the bank can say, oh, Adam's my customer. He's my customer in multiple ways. I didn't know that. Cool. Now I can match up and maybe I can do something more for him. That is a it, it sounds simple. It sounds obvious, but actually, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult because no, you I don't think it sounds simple at all. I mean, that you're talking about kind of cost reduction, right? It should lead to cost reduction, but yeah. there's costs along the way as well, and you yeah. have to change the way that people generate revenues. And yeah, so it's it's a big, difficult process, and energy transition is even bigger and even harder. Well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I guess the the story that, so when you mentioned DBS, right, mm -hmm. you've got a visionary founder who's telling a story that's moving the culture of the bank. Well, yeah, not the founder, but the CEO, yeah. Oh, sorry, forgive me, yeah, CEO is, I mean, he's telling a story uh, that is moving, has moved already the culture of the bank. Is that, is it? Isn't that kind of what storytellers do? They move, uh, if they're not changing the culture because people say strategy eats culture for lunch. You've heard that, right? I haven't, but um, but I think that culture is, is kind of the underlying unspoken sort of fundamental in large organizations uh, or small ones. And changing it is, is difficult because it's sometimes it's not just your institution, but you exist within uh, you know, an ecosystem of other institutions that probably have similar points of view, similar regulation, similar you know, structures. So getting one to change is, is hard. Um, and so to your extent, do you need to tell stories? Absolutely. Uh, you need to tell a story though that's grounded in reality <laughs> and has some, well, yeah, but has some vision. It has got to have a little bit of carrot and stick. Um, and you've got to have a direction to go for sure. Um, and I think, you know, that's a key part of leadership. How would you describe the culture of whole uh, professional investors, wholesale investors, PE, VC, family office? How would you describe the, their culture when it comes to uh, 
uh, climate change as an asset class? Uh, non-existent. I don't think climate change is really an asset class today. Um, and I'd say very little awareness or interest over, for the most part. Um, because? Because it's not something that fits so easily into the traditional way that they've been set up to think about the world. So there are some exceptions, of course, but um, <clears throat> but broadly speaking, I don't think it's ever been something they have to they've really considered. Um, that's starting to change because climate change, you know, I think it's starting to impact all of our lives. Um, and also because now there's a lot more regulation uh, around disclosure uh, that companies, listed companies at least, have to make. Um, and the way that investors, uh, at least, you know, say, um, very long run institutional type investors have to uh, now account for when they think about whether it's the underlying company or it's the portfolio manager who's managing money on, for, on, on their behalf. Uh, they now have a growing body of, of rules and regulations and disclosure requirements and ways to think about how do I integrate these risks into my decision making. ESG you're talking about. Yes. Right. Yeah. So ESG is becoming moving from like ideas into uh, those product documents you talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, ESG, environmental, social and governance factors are thought of as um, the way to think of them is, is as risk factors to an investor. Uh, so what is the risk of investing in a given company based on uh you know their their own asset profile so if you know the classic case would be if this is a, a big oil and gas developer um and right now you know you can make a lot of money uh, on what they do but if you think that at some point they won't be able to actually burn the carbon that they've got property rights to because it's just you know, uh, either they'll be regulated out or, I mean, it'll just be the last straw, then that becomes what's called a stranded asset. So they have the asset, they own the asset. Uh, today, it's worth, you know, a lot of money, but, you know, in 10 or 15 years, it might be worth zero. Yeah. So this is a this is just a very simplistic way to think about what is the thought process that the ESG movement is trying to instill in a, a wide variety of, of lenders, and investors uh, yeah that so, makes yeah, sense i appreciate that culture now whether or not it's going to work <laughs> is a separate story but that's that's the idea yeah right i mean the my the most at the most basic level having worked in a bank where at the end of the day you get measured on one number how much money you made or lost mm. so my guess is that investors like in private equity, VC, family office, refuse to invest in uh, things that will benefit uh, or reduce climate change risk because they're afraid that they're going to lose money. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah, I mean, that's it, right? Or I'm not going to make the alpha target. I'm just going to hit beta and I need more than beta or I'm not even going to get beta. It's going to be worse than that. Yeah. I mean, is there any more basic way to put it than that? Like, because that's that's the fear that I get when I attend things like the Asia Family Office, Hong Kong Private Equity. It's like, why invest in ESG when I'm going to lose money? Yeah. So 
that's certainly a, a, a big question mark. The ESG community um, is probably easy, more applicable to the long-term mutual fund world than it would be to a PE shop or- What uh, makes you say that? Because the metrics they're using are probably better aimed at that type of institution. It's aimed at large pension funds or large insurance companies that have to invest over a long period of time. And they need things that are easier to measure and calculate, standardize. So public company information uh, is the easiest to, to get. And it's also easier for stock exchanges or other regulators to mandate disclosure requirements of those companies, which may not necessarily fit into the kinds of investments that private capital is making. There will be some overlap, obviously, but um, it may not be primary. Um, and the biggest, you know, the, the biggest pools of institutional money have traditionally been, you know, these sorts of large pension funds and insurance companies, these, these long-term institutional investors. So I think that's just been where the conversation has been. Mm -hmm. Well, when, when those people make decisions, sometimes those will move the market, Right. Who are we talking about? Like uh, like a $70 billion pension fund. Uh, I mean, generally, those pension funds uh, aren't really in the headlines. It, it could do if they make something very dramatic, like if the Norwegian oil fund decides to divest from a particular country or something. That mm -hmm. will make news. But for the most part... But make news is one thing. Changing the way other investors behave is a complete another level. Then you've got investor correlation behavior. Uh, if it if it's something that that's prominent um, and um, and they get good press or whatever, then it, it can make a difference. But most of that stuff, mo most of these things are very behind the scenes, day to day kind of boring decisions because most of these sorts of long only institutions um, they don't actually manage the money directly. They might just set a very broad strategy. But well, that's ESG. Like, well, I need I mean, a, yeah, I got per, like you're talking about LPGP, right? So they will they will allocate their assets to a variety of different asset types, bonds, equities, managers, and then to the managers to do it for them. They tend they, these institutions tend not to actually manage the money directly themselves. So it's then down one level to those external asset managers who are responsible and charged with providing some sort of ESG related report back up up to the the asset owner yeah um and that's the beginning of the the reporting chain um but you know that asset owner might make a decision like well you know we have to either because they're forced to by regulation or perhaps you know they feel that their stakeholders their employees or whomever they represent um are pressuring them they might take certain steps in certain policies around well we want to make sure that we are um, perhaps not investing in certain types of companies or that we want to make sure that we've got a certain, you know, um, 
you know, we want to boost our ESG metrics that we can take back to our stakeholders. Um, and so again, they need things that they can measure and ways they need, um, you know, they need to be able to tell that story uh, to whomever it is that they want to hear, who needs to hear it. Um, and so usually, so standards, data, uh, benchmarks, you know, you need to find ways to quantify all this stuff. So it gets very, very boring, very fast. Uh, not for everybody, but I know what you mean. Um, this idea that uh, food security may or may not be impacted by climate change um, and that some people are actually worried about food security. There was a Lex Fridman podcast I listened to the other week. Uh a couple got a couple experts on there. One of them mentioned that uh, uh, most of the rich world is worried, incredibly worried about climate change. Uh, there was an OECD report that 60% of all people in OECD countries believe that global warming will likely or very likely lead to the extinction of mankind. So dinosaur risk. Um, if most of the rich world is incredibly worried about climate change, and rich people are the ones who are putting money with the LPs and GPs, then why are we, why is that not coming out in the form of, uh, of larger investments into this type of stuff? What's the disconnect? Uh, fundamentally, the disconnect is that we have been telling ourselves that we can have our cake and eat it, <laughs> that, that um, energy transition is still something that we can grow into rather than requiring a cost or requiring kind of societal-wide degrowth or other forms of changes that people don't like. Um, I don't think this is actually, I think there's, it's only partly true. I think in some ways we still need technology to get us to some solutions that will enable us to get through this, but it will only but if if the only thing we're we're relying on is the hope that um, that some of these technologies will will do the job for us, I think we're going to be set for disappointment. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I hear that. Uh, especially, it's funny from uh, what I think would be conservative parties are like. Look, we can use technology to to solve the problem. We. We do not need to make any sacrifice in terms of um, you know too much cost. Yeah, is that that's what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't even just put it at the foot of the the conservatives, um, although I think that attitude is probably uh, prevalent um, and and very much incomplete. Well, I, I hear it in Australia. So, you know, in a you know, but also wealthy liberal communities in you know modern cities, whether it's Sydney or San Francisco. Um, you know, they talk a good game, but when it comes to actually making those sacrifices, um, you know, the, the, the concept of the NIMBY, not in my backyard, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, is, uh, is yeah, doesn't good. matter if you're, you're uh, you know, liberal or conservative, that tends to be a, uh, a, a steady. So um, I think there's still, uh, um, of course, a desire to, you know, to say, okay, technology can, will solve this problem for us, but um, technology will have to be part part of the solution. We we should continue to invest aggressively in, um, and this is the role I think of venture capital, in particular investing as well as corporate labs investing heavily in uh, ideas around different strategies for carbon sequestration, 
uh, or or other things. But um, by itself, it's not going to be a, a cure all. Uh, we still need to uh, essentially, without a carbon tax, I don't think we'll really uh, achieve those goals. Yeah, I won't argue with that. Um, I remember in California when they changed the emission laws, and then that forced the car companies to innovate. Mm -hmm. It feels like that's not that that feels like the inciting incident in the story that hasn't yet happened. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, we need a carbon tax. Um, people hate that, but I don't see any way around it. Yeah, yeah, I won't argue that. I mean, whatever you want to call it, uh, tax, uh, trading scheme, there needs there needs to be uh, the government, the people that are in control to come in and uh, raise the bar in terms of the way that uh, energy gets created. Is that, is that it? Yeah, I mean, basically, energy pollution and 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 climate change are are market externalities. So, in classical economics, uh, everything on paper works fine, except then you find these little exceptions that don't seem to fit the model, and there's a cost to other people that is not captured in by the producer. Uh, pollution is a classic example. So, you know, a chemical company uh, yeah. dumps dumps bad toxic stuff into the public lake uh, and and everybody else ends up paying for that in the cost of 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 poor health or or you know losing the fish population or whatever um, and that chemical company pays nothing um, and so we enjoy the products of that chemical company um, so we're, we're enjoying you know consuming whatever it is that they're creating but yeah. uh, but the price we're paying is way too low given the action because the it doesn't factor in the costs of of the other the damage that's being done that's called a market externality and climate change is the result of a massive market externality gone gone amuck basically um we have been uh you know the industrial revolution was amazing it's what allowed humankind to finally use machines to replace human muscle exploit natural resources and create wealth and modern modernity uh and and you know democracy and all these things were really part and parcel of the, the rise of this incredible transformation uh we've had a great run however it's been at the cost of expending all the all, all the natural resources so we're, we've clearly hit the buffers and what we can continue to do um and so if we don't change what we're doing then I think that those growth numbers then, uh, you know, are at risk of of reversing. So the, these all require a combination of technological flexibility, um, charging people something closer to the true price of pollution, right? Uh, and uh, and and then finding ways to this, and then the ESG bit is where you are using. Uh, a variety of carrots and sticks and disclosures and data and so on to get financial institutions from both the lending side and the investing side to push companies to change to reward companies that are making good changes to um to get out of companies that are not um and that is, so that's the market response uh essentially with the regulatory guidance but essentially it's a market response to to this but by itself it's not going to get us there we need more i hear you 
Were you at Boao, I think in 2014, 13, 14, when Xi Jinping created the AIIB? Uh, I might have been. I don't remember, to be honest. <laughs> I, yeah. But I remember, with the, of course, I remember the, the creation of the AIIB. And, um, okay. Uh, All right. Sort of cool. geopolitical. So if you analyze the process that that startup founder took to move the investors, the first investors in the AIIB, would you would it be fair to say that storytelling played a key role? I think storytelling is always a, a role in any kind of initiative, whether it's something big and new like the Asian Institutional Infrastructure Bank, yeah. um, or if it's just day to day, like you know, I'm the the CEO of a business and I've got to rally my sure. people. Yeah. In a but I'm direction. but I'm trying to be very specific. When well, I that, stood, that when, I, a... when I stood there and I heard Xi Jinping talk about the China dream. And the new Silk Road to achieve that dream. I personally was inspired. Well, it's you um, hear that story or yeah, I mean it's it, it's a big picture of political vision. Um, of course, uh, all successful politicians have have something like that. Not yeah, all sure yeah. So actually, I think some. I actually I think politicians in Australia are not very good at storytelling. So I would disagree about that. Okay. Yeah. Um. I'm, and I'm just trying to get really technical in a um, in a non-political way about the process of storytelling when it comes to someone moving investors. Hmm. Because when I was at Boal, I don't think there's a place, maybe Davos, where bigger investors come together or came together to talk. Like Gates, I've, I, you know, I've stood in front of Bill Gates there, right? Like there's big, big money there, right? The biggest people in the world, and when when the AIB was created, that um, uh, the person, the the person who drove it, the founder, I believe moved emotion in uh, leaders of countries. Like uh, Tony Abbott was the prime minister of Australia at the time, a conservative leader, and. Xi Jinping was able to move him across the line to get Australia to invest, I think, 900 million or a billion, at least U.S., into that. So in terms of the art of storytelling to move investors from A to B, I never saw anybody do a better job. Is that Does that sound stupid? What do you think about that? Well, I think um, you need to, as a political leader, you need to have a well-defined goal and be able to justify it and then find a, find a narrative to fit that. Um, also, I mean, China's very powerful, <laughs> so though, I think people were, were coming ready to do some kind of deal. Um, but I don't, I don't remember the specifics of, of, of any of that. So I, I couldn't talk about that particular example. Um, so I, in terms of storytelling, well, yeah, actually, that narrative yeah, vision for a actually country what is, you just said right there, that's a really good, let's, let's, let me try to grab that point. People were coming there's an economic power in play, power dynamic, right? People are confused and they're showing up and they're looking for some direction. And when they hear a story that, that makes sense to them, then they're more likely to invest in that story. Does that sound wrong? Uh, stories are very powerful. Um, and, um, you know, I, I agree at a sort of a, 
like some sort of liminal subconscious level that they are um they're what drive a lot of our of our behavior so when you've got yeah credible leaders that are talking about take you know taking people along and showing them a path uh, yeah. and convincing them that this is a good path to take and walking walking the walk and talking as well as talking the talk um yeah. you know that's that is of course i think how most people at that top level try to get things done uh, agreed but i don't you know i don't know what in terms of 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 climate energy transition and, and addressing climate change i mean we do have wait i don't want to jump there do you mind if we don't not jump there yet okay can fine just, can we just stay on the uh moving investor prince concept and, and analysis well investors respond to um obviously first where they think they can make a good investment uh where they're going to get it okay just just hang on return. just hang on but isn't there some level of um uh, don't some experts say that all big decisions in life are either a combination or based more on emotion? Many uh, are. Maybe we don't recognize them as such. Uh, so like runs, you know, we talked about, you talked about, you know, there was a run on uh, the banks. <laughs> yeah, 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 Obviously yeah. that was... Uh, yeah. um, fear. Fear. Um, big emotion. That, yeah, that led people to... A, a, a decide, a, you know, kind of a, a survival instinct um, exactly. that overran. If they had been able to, if perhaps there had been more time, and things moved a little more slowly, uh, they might have been able to hammer out an agreement with between the, you know, between the bank. And, and right, wait, wait, wait. Totally great, totally great. All right, so that, what you but that didn't happen. So yeah. yeah, I'm with you. So. To try to, I really appreciate your thoughts there, and you've you've reminded me of an idea I wanted to ask you a question about. Is it wrong to say this? Investors are more likely to cross the chasm to make the investment when they become more afraid to not make it. Yeah. So sometimes, um, because what happens in bull markets is you might have your personal doubts about something, but you see everybody else doing it and they're going to get rewarded at least in the short run. And if you don't do it, you're going to look bad in the short run and your next bonus is going to be terrible or you might get fired. So, so that's correlation. So in, there's a guy, you know, Canva, right? Canva? The company. The, yeah, yes. yeah, Canva, yeah. yeah. So the co-founder there, his name is Cliff Obrecht, I think. He said something about Australian investors. He goes, the VCs, they all move like sheep. Mm. One, one does it and they just all go boom. Yeah, because that does happen uh, with a lot of VCs because they're not really set up to do the kind of due diligence that um, they should. Uh, they... Um, they they do rely on if you know if okay Sequoia likes that company well if Sequoia did it then it must be fine you know exactly uh, I've done that I've done that trade too it's like a beta trade like if I yes. don't if I don't go there my beta is more likely to shrink yeah so you try to get into those kinds of deals and it's the same thing in public markets as well you know yeah um, yeah uh, or uh, you know during the run up to the two thousand and eight financial crisis in the U S the right. um, you know, yeah. the investment banks are just creating more and more of these bizarrely, you know, clearly uh, rickety um, subprime mortgage securitizations. Yeah. Um, and if they didn't do it, they were going to suffer. So they, exactly. they did it. Yeah. 
Yeah, great. Look, I really appreciate you helping me understand this investor psychology dynamic, which I think most people, uh, you know, are, are, are not thinking clearly enough about. Because when you look at, uh, if you ask, when people ask Jeff Bezos, why did you start Amazon? I think you might have heard what I did, which is he was more afraid to not do it than he was to do it. You know that when he said, I was afraid to wake up like at 80 or 90 and never have done. Right. Yeah, done it. I think that's a that's a different instinct to then the herd mentality or or the the fear of missing out. I think th those are two different things. Really? That is. Um, Why? Yeah, because one is one is chasing a crowd. The other one is stepping out and doing something that's different from the crowd. That's a very different kind of risk. And a very yeah, but both are based on regret, fear of regret. But one is a fear of like immediate regret. If I don't do this, I don't get my bonus. The other one is if I don't do this, I'll look back in my life and think I didn't do anything with it. Yeah, net. I, I mean, all we're talking about net net present value of regret. <laughs> okay, all right, but um, I, I think I don't think it's regret that would drive an entrepreneur to create something like that. I think it's um, fear of regret. Well, I mean, okay, there's there's that's one part of it, but it's also um, a desire to to try. Uh, a desire to prove yourself, uh, you know, you think you've got an idea or a technology or a business concept. Um, you think you get rich. Yeah, um, agree. Totally change agree. things. Um, so what you're what you're saying is making me ask this question, which is, does the argument around climate change is it all about uh, stick and no carrot? Not enough. Where's the carrot? So there's some carrots in what we've got today. Yeah, but there's not so, enough carrots to invest in, right? Like, where are they? Well, people are investing in stuff. Um, I we know this, but there's not, but there's not the fund out there that says actually, um, I just uh, made like when uh, when Michael Burry made all the money in the GFC, right? Yeah. Like he's like the leader. That hasn't has anybody had a uh, uh, a, a climate change focused fund that has outperformed like every other fund? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, the I, don't know either. I doubt it though. If we don't know, it probably hasn't happened, right? We, we probably have heard of it. I think also that um, the time horizons with climate change are long. Yeah. They're a little bit longer than the average kind of investor time horizon for most people. So you, maybe somebody's out there doing that now, but we might not know about it for a long time. That's true. That's, I mean, that's what I call like a Silk Road, Milk Road time horizon. Um, did you know that the Silk Road operated for 3000 years before it ever had a name? Yeah, I've, I've written about this. Um, oh, good. So yeah, um, most of it was actually maritime, but yeah, um, there's been trade um, through the the South China, Java, and uh, seas and the um, Indian Ocean for a very long time. Yeah, trading. It was, but it was only in 1877 that that the Silk Road was was actually name was coined by a German person. Well, of course, it's the sort of thing that a European would give the name to because they never they were clueless about all this stuff. And then they sort of show up and they're like, oh, there's the Silk Road. How cool. <laughs> I really I, I value what you just said there a lot. I think that there's a lot in there.
right? Like, it's like having a dog around the house and you never give it a name because it's like your dog. And yeah. then somebody shows up and is like, what's the name of your dog? Your baby. Like, I don't know, dog, baby, right? Um, and then and then what happened, I think, is that Xi Jinping used that name to inspire and move investors' emotions about the relationship that, uh, you know, that had um, kind of um, become outdated, out of date, and and use that to re-inspire people. Is that? Yes, I mean, I, he's laying claim to uh, an older legacy, which is partly true, uh, and um, using it to basically say that China has been a big player, has been in some ways the biggest player uh, at different periods, certainly in Asia, if not in the world, and therefore, uh, you know, they're taking back that role. Uh, and so you should naturally, uh, right. you know, accommodate them because yeah. just because. Uh, and so that's the that's the narrative. So make room for us. We're, we're going to be um, the top dog in Asia and we're at some point going to be the top dog globally. And that's just it's because we're, we're you know, we're we're jungle. We're the central kingdom. And I'm you know, with you. I'm with you. So when that story, that fact. I'm with you. So when that story gets told to a European. And it's like, uh, you know, this is the, we have a Silk Road relationship with you. Um, the European then becomes the customer because it's all about the silk we make to feed, you know, they send your way. Right. Like it's it's a really powerful narrative tool. Is that not true? Yeah. I mean, China is no is unquestionably the workshop of the world has been for some time. And but we're uh, just talking about the story like. Yeah. But I mean, but I mean, also, I mean, Chinese manufacturers have always been. I'm not questioning the authenticity of the story. I'm talking about the ability to tell it, which is which can be different. It's something can be totally legit, but if you suck at storytelling, people right. don't care. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, they've done a very good job of using this sort of branding to kind of remind people of these older relationships, remind people that um, you know there was a time when China was the world's biggest economy. Um, and that there are longstanding trade routes that people developed, um, and that this is basically a uh, an incarnation of those old patterns. Yeah, right. Yeah, I like that. A natural progression in the journey. Well, I'd say a, a re um, a reestablishment of sure. previous norms. So oh. implicit in that is an argument that that the new norms, the current modern norms set by the West yeah. uh, are, uh, I wouldn't say they're trying to delegitimize them. I think they're trying to say, however, that those are not uh, universal. Um, and this is where you get into political issues because- Yeah, let's uh, not go there. Let's not, uh, let's not go, let's try but to- that, but, that is, but that is implied in the, in, the, in the whole thing. That's part of the package. I hear you. I won't argue that. I, I'm just trying to stay- in your expertise area of uh, as a journalist in storytelling and how a story is is often just can be described as a journey from one place to another that creates change yeah okay i think that the the, the bri story is um the belton road story which is a, you know the, the new silk road is yeah it's kind um, of those are interchangeable terms I, yeah i don't know if i would define it as trying to create change or return to an, a previous status quo or return to a, a previous set of values. 
I think it's it's a conservative movement in my view. All right, I have I look, I've got a different perspective of that. But uh the question that I really am keen to ask and I know we only have maybe uh 20 minutes max left or so. So I want to try to use my time with you uh sparingly. If if Xi Jinping had not given a name to the journey called New Silk Road. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the AIIB would have gotten funded? Like, do you think that that story, that component in the story, which is a name of the journey to 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 the new China? Justify the bank, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think if he didn't have that, like, if he didn't have that storytelling component, which is like when um, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz is going to meet the Wizard of Oz, if she didn't have a Yellow Brick Road name, a name for the Yellow Brick Road, then would we have watched the movie? And right. would we would we uh, have emo uh, have empathy for Dorothy in the story and even watched it? So that's the question. Yeah, uh, I think the answer is probably no. I think the answer yes. is yes. You know, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think that the yeah you need you need something to sell it. Otherwise, it's just ordinary business. Um, and then when you start putting labels on it, then it becomes a vision. So then you have to say where where is there where are they trying to take this, and what does that mean for for us? That's my understanding, and and as you and I were at Boal, I think. That was happening without my knowledge. And then during COVID, I started studying storytelling. And I'm like, gee, I wonder if that happened to us, but more like Tony Abbott and other world leaders, where they just got seduced by this storytelling uh, skill set toolbox. I think what it is, it's a very useful way for uh, for Beijing to kind of paint a picture for people and say, this is where we came from. This is what we are. And this is where we see it going. And they use language that people understand. Yeah. Um, and and made it sound positive for everyone, um, you know, based around growth and trade. Yeah. And 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 development of some of the countries along the way. Uh, and you know, that made it a easy for people to understand, okay, this is the story. This is how we can relate to this country. Yeah. Uh, if we see them doing certain activities, this is how we can interpret what that means. Yeah. I think in the intervening years, the for many outside, <clears throat> uh, the story has been become more complicated. Oh, for sure. But, okay. <clears throat> but, right. but but nonetheless, there's yeah. people can you know if you say New Silk Road, people instantly kind of understand at a gut level. That you're talking about trade and connection between China and the rest of the world. Agreed. Makes total sense. That's how I understand. The other fascinating thing I believe that happens when you do that, and and when uh, Xi Jinping did that, is when you give a name to the journey, then you get these other story component tools that you can use to move investors, like levers. Because once you've got a name for the journey, then you've got a name for the investment trend, the 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 investment theme, the root of trade investment and culture leading to the vision in which I believe. 
And if you don't have that, then you're less likely to move the investor at the emotional level. Uh, it could be, um, I mean, it helps to explain and put something in a context. But yeah. at the end of the day, there's still deal by deal. There's still nuts and bolts. For sure. There's deal by deal. But you've got to have that that heartstring tug thing. Well, I think it's, you, you can call it um, propaganda or you can call it uh, just, you know, trying to enunciate a, a vision for what you're trying to do. So people accept what you're trying to do and, and view it favorably. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's certainly a clever use of wording and imagery to sell um, a, a big part of Chinese foreign policy. Well, to move investors, because that's, Look, either investors moved or they didn't move, right? And that's the difference between the old world and the new world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the the Belt and Road kind of investments are state-led. Um, so there might be roles for private banks to provide credit. There might be roles for private corporations to do contracts with these things. But, um, you know, I don't know if I'm, you know, an infrastructure bank, you know, basically a multilateral development bank is 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 one source of funding for these things and of course i think that was important because if they wanted to create that sense of funding that was independent of the world bank then they needed to create a story to go with it uh yeah, and, agreed. And, that, and that got a lot of buy-in including not from the us and not from india but it certainly got buy-in from you know the uk and australia and others who you know i think i can't remember if japan's in there i think they are so, you know, you ended up with a genuinely multilateral institution. I think they're, I think they're not, but uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So climate, climate, climate change, would you consider that to be the name of an investment trend or theme? No, um, unfortunately. So no, okay, cool, 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 cool. If that, the answer is no. So if there's no name for the investment trend or theme, then how do investors get on it? Right now, we're limited to two ways. One is if you're investing in some sort of generic investment mutual fund or something like that, some of these are being branded as green um, and that they are uh, supposedly investing in companies that are not contributing to carbon emissions or that are leading us to a reduction in carbon emissions. You had to be careful with those because greenwashing is prevalent. The other way is if you are yourself a private in private capital world, um, if you have a view that there's going to be opportunity because the world is changing uh, and more regulation or more more things are going to happen, then you can take a view on that privately. So in the VC world, there are certainly um, a lot of companies that are investing in various types of of green technology, uh, technology that's hopefully going to deal with some of these carbon issues. They will not by themselves um provide everything we need but they can they can they can start they can trigger some things and then lead to some sort of scaling businesses um and then private companies uh that are doing you know, may, maybe not the the actual polluters but the uh large corporate labs that have you know research capabilities um university research labs so what's the name? I'm in the investor. And let's say you run a fund and I've got $10 billion that you're trying to move from A to B. And I ask you, what's the name 
of the investment trend in which I have, I'm betting. Because when those banks sit around and they go, why should we put 10 billion in? They go, oh, New Silk Road, that's our investment theme. So with climate change, what's, if, if climate change is not the name of the investment theme, then I'm asking you what it is, because if I don't have one, then I'm confused. So, okay, so there are a lot of companies that are marketing what they do uh, in terms of fund products as green or echo or- yeah. I think we don't have one. I, I think that maybe- they, I mean, they exist. You can, I mean, there's plenty of them on the marketplace, but- The name um, of the trend, the name of the megatrend is- uh, I would call, well, climate change or energy transition. Energy transition is the the way you can invest in this idea, but it's it's very slow, difficult, long-term process. Name um, of the journey and the story to the promised land, because that's, so the investors, they need to get to the promised land. The promised land is we don't all die. I'm with you. I, so I'm with you. Yeah, that's I'm why it's you. so hard because the, the it's not like if I get to the promised land, I'm going to become 10 times richer and 10 times happier. It's yeah, more like I'm going to avoid bad things happening to me and my children. Uh, that's but it's spit. a long way off. And I don't get, yes, but that's the story. So, you know, the story is that we can't continue to, uh, throw carbon and, and other stuff into the atmosphere because it's going to have, it's already having an impact on our climate. This is going to have a huge impact on agriculture for sure. Yeah. And, you know, our food supplies will be at risk. Um, and, you know, we have to, ch we have to change all aspects of our society to avoid this, this terrible outcome. That's super hard, super painful. And, uh, and, and so we've got baby steps Oh, invest, you know, I'm, you know, fund manager XYZ. I've got this, you know, green bio fund, whatever. But what's actually, what are they actually investing in? What are the ESG metrics they're using to like prove that what they're doing is actually good? You've got oil and gas companies that issue green bonds because they're going to maybe a particular project that is, you know, maybe like a renewables. But, right. but you know, it's, you know, if ExxonMobil's issuing a green bond, is that... Is that really the right thing to do? Um, I, you know, these are complicated questions. So, um, and and the solutions are not always clear. So I think the theme for investors is that these are things that are happening. I think that, you know, they are now being required to put some numbers around how do they manage these risks? How do they think about these risks? They have to start taking these risks into account. So that's a useful step. Uh, and that that that's both for banks that are going to be lending to these companies, as well as to um, to funds that are investing in the the stocks or bonds of these companies. Uh, by itself, that won't be enough, but it's it is a start, um, right. and we have seen some meaningful progress. Uh, it's been difficult to get everybody's ducks aligned, agreeing sure. on what is what is super hard. I think. ESG itself is a bit of a problem because uh, to me, the crisis is okay. around carbon right. and then on, ESG has all these other things. So it makes I'm it very you. difficult I'm, to create. I'm with you. you know, so uh, blockchain, is, the word blockchain, would you consider that to be the name of an investment trend? Uh, well, yeah, it was. <laughs> until okay. about last Fair year. enough. Yeah. I mean, look, big or small, but it's it works as a name for the investment trend. 
like yeah when, so now it's being rebranded as web3 is the new, new the new version of that which is actually taking off in, in like where i live in hong kong right uh it's a big thing but um and ai ai is the name of a new investment trend absolutely right so so climate change i do think does work sometime as the name of an investment trend for people who believe that it's happening uh so yes it can be it can be a useful branding thing for the retail side which is because uh, she because like correlated asset people when those VC managers are all making the same investment, they're thinking in a correlated way. They're like yeah. sheep moving as a herd. And if so, you don't have and, the language to communicate yeah. about the trend, then you're kind of like, you're not moving. Corporates, corporates love ESG, Adam. They they love ESG. It's, uh, you know, particularly for those that have, you know, slightly better scores. Uh, they they love it because it makes them feel good. Yeah. Uh, it, they can. That's a story they can take back to their shareholders uh, or their other stakeholders. Right. So, ESG is a a very popular storyline with with corporates. Yeah. Um, but the actual when you get you know when you you know look at the actual engine uh, when you look at the actual things that are happening, I don't know how effective this is, but people love a good story. So you're right in that there's a big story on environment and communities and ESG, um, which is good. I mean, of course we want to value those things. Um, are they leading to the kinds of investments that make a huge difference? That's a separate question. I have my doubts. Um, and are we, and is that story enough to get us over the line? I think what will, I think we're going to have to see more difficulties that will force us to change i think we'll be forced to change because things are going to get harder yeah uh, rather than because of this particular narrative this narrative right now is is useful for for corporate communications people and for ceos um but the harder the hard work has really yet to begin yeah makes sense well like i said at the beginning of the podcast you're an expert when it comes to currencies understanding them you wrote a book about that uh calories to crypto i believe it's called yeah and uh as a journalist and uh, published author you're an expert uh when it comes to storytelling so i really appreciate the opportunity to um to ask you some questions about some storytelling that we saw uh, at the geopolitical level in one of the most fascinating places in the world in the, at Boao and Hainan. So thank you for help, helping me understand and, and unpack that. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes before I know you've got to get going. Is there anything um, that you want to say about this? Because uh, I do want to leave you the last word. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been nice chatting with you. Um, good to catch up. Um, I think that uh, the worlds that you know, I th a lot of things are converging, AI, other parts of technology, the the investment that goes into these, the way that we commercialize these technologies, uh, the energy transition that we need, the digital transformation that we saw take place across financial institutions has to now be turned into an energy transition, which is going to be a massive undertaking for the next, I, I think, really for certainly for the rest of our lives, Adam. And probably the next generation as well. Um, so, in terms of what investors are looking for, I don't think that's an easy 
like stick a label on it. I do this and I'm done and that's it. I think it's going to be something that is going to touch all facets of business uh, for a long time to come. And I think this will just be a, a massive driver. I'm, we're going to be, people are going to be screaming and shouting about this stuff for, for years to come. Um, good and bad, but, you know, I think these, these questions of how do you tie the need for this change into a narrative that everyone understands? I agree with you. That's that would be useful right now. There's a lot of disagreement and discord on this, um, and um, the the risk is that the only way that we'll really ever agree is if things get so bad with the climate that we really literally have no choice and we're just scrambling. But that is an outcome that we would prefer to avoid. To avoid that outcome does mean that we have to really think a lot harder about the costs of energy transition because it's not there. There might be some growth opportunities in it, but I think we have to be a little more realistic about what those what those mean. Nobody wants to talk about that, um, and but uh, I do. And yeah, I okay. appreciate and I and I really appreciate you doing it now. Thank you. But Thank but you. you know, but I'm not running a PNL for at a at a hedge fund, so. Um, I know, you know, I, exactly. You know, I different. I, you know, it's easy for me to say it, uh, but for if you, if it's you on the line, but you, but you do you know, guide, you do guide conversations uh, with people and for people, and but I think most importantly between people, and you write and communicate ideas that uh, that that help uh, them have a less confusing conversation. Well, you we, thank you. Trying, but um, at any rate, uh, it's certainly an interesting place to be. Uh, I've been very fortunate um, in in my in my career, and um, yeah, uh, look forward to uh, to keeping in touch. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you've got a book coming out. Uh, I think in June or later this year, uh, yeah. August. Yeah. Um, about it's called Planet VC. It's uh, the history of venture capital beyond Silicon Valley, beyond the United States. Oh, great. Well, I'm look. I know I'm looking forward to reading it. And uh, and I would love to think that you might come back on uh, after I get a good reading and uh, and we could talk about that. Sure. I've got a co-author, Terrence Phillips. I'm sure we'd be delighted to come talk, talk to you. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thanks again for catching up uh, when I was in Hong Kong the other week and sharing your time now. And uh, so uh, very much appreciate uh, you uh, coming on as a guest. Thanks, James. Thank you. And thanks to uh, whoever's still with us for listening. Oh, I just learned a lot that I did not know. So thanks so very much to James for sharing his valuable wisdom and experience of crafting stories, especially about the impact of tech on finance. And I really appreciated that James began our podcast with a joke about the Big Moo, a great nickname for the Milk Road podcast. And that reminds me of what Oscar Wilde once said, which was basically, if you want to tell someone the truth, then you better make them laugh or they'll want to kill you. So on that note, it's wild to think about how one of the world's most powerful storytellers moved some of the most sophisticated investors in the world by using a powerful name for the journey and the story he told them about the future. Thanks so very much for listening, and we're looking forward to hearing what you think.